Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin, a group of medical experts in Hamilton weighing in on the return to school. Advocates for affordable housing in Hamilton who were charged last year are demanding those charges be dropped. Two paramedics who were found guilty for their role in the death of a Good Samaritan in Hamilton have been sentenced to 18 months to be served in the community. A small group of Canadian Special Forces have been sent to Ukraine as tensions rise on the Russia-Ukraine border. Higher inflation and unemployment have made Canada the sixth most miserable country on the planet. And a group in the UK looking into whether a four-day work week is plausible. Could it work here? The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. We do need to start to think about this virus in terms of how we manage it um, as we go forward. And that ultimately we don't have tests available to all of us. We aren't going to know exactly where all those cases are and what is happening um, around us. That is Hamilton Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, who says vaccination against COVID-19 is the best way to keep schools open. This, as a group of medical experts in Hamilton, gets set to hold an event this afternoon to discuss the return to school. And that's the focus right now here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Joining us to discuss this is Dr. Dennis D. Valentino, family doctor and an assistant clinical professor of family medicine at McMaster University. Dr. D. Valentino, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm not too bad. Uh, It's the question that every parent is asking themselves, are our children going to be safe in school? Uh, I know every case is different and every school is different, but what's your general sense on uh, how we are going to be doing over the next few months? Yes, these are some tough questions, and that's why we put together the event today. Um, As you know, we'll be uh, discussing this topic at length at Banshee.com slash COVID this afternoon, and and we'll hear from some really good experts. One is Dr. Martha Fulford, who uh, is a pediatric infectious disease physician, who will talk a lot about the uh, safety perspective for children when it comes to return to school. And then we've got Dr. Krista Boylan, who is a specialist, a pediatric psychiatrist, and she's going to help uh, help us understand a little bit more about the implications of not sending kids back to school and, and what that might mean. And so I think it's important, Rick, when we talk about safety for children, that we expand the discussion past safety with respect to COVID. And we start talking about um, sort of uh, broader safety and, and, and start including things like well-being and our, our children's overall health. So in saying that, and back to the original question, uh, is there a confidence level among physicians that uh, we're doing this correctly and and the kids will be safe? Well, I think that it's time in the pandemic that we have to start shifting from a sort of exclusive focus on COVID safety, as I said, to, to a more broader discussion. And so it's very, very difficult to suggest that the current path will produce absolute safety. We just think it's uh, almost certainly better than the alternative. Our children's mental health has been front and center throughout the pandemic, as we know, as feelings of uh, isolation, anxiety, depression have risen amongst the student population. Have you noticed more and more kids reporting these symptoms in Hamilton, or has that been leveling off? That's absolutely not been leveling off. I think that's something that's ramping up and increasing the concern. Uh, some of us on the front line who are hearing these things from children. And, of course, we're we're very familiar with mental health discussions, but the age at which we are starting to have them and the types of discussions that we're having is, is fairly concerning. And very young children 
you know, who don't see hope for tomorrow. And, and we know that when it comes to mental wellness, a positive outlook and hope is the number one thing. And to be taking that away from children and hearing them describe that quite articulately at the age of seven or eight is really what's ramped up our concern and, and, and caused us to move forward with the event like today and other similar discussions. So what can parents do at home if their child is expressing these feelings? So we'll hear from Dr. Boylan today, and, and as I said, she's a pediatric psych, psych, psychiatrist who will talk a little bit more about how to deal with some of the negative consequences and, of course, what the positive things that we know can help children. And, uh, and one of the things that I would suggest in, in terms of answering your question is there's not a lot of great things that we can do if we don't allow for the proper social development. And so I think parents should focus on uh, obtaining that again for our children, what we call putting these kids back at the front of the bus and allowing them to do the things that are really the, the substance of the answer to your question. Social engagement with family and friends and other things that promote this proper social and interpersonal development. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Dr. Dennis D. Valentino, family doctor and an assistant clinical professor of family medicine at McMaster University. We're talking about kids going back to school and whether or not they are safe. Uh, 46% of children aged 5 to 11 in Hamilton have received at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. 10% have had two shots. Are those encouraging numbers? Well, um, I have a slightly different take, and, uh, and I'll go ahead and discuss it, uh, possibly at my peril, but I'll, I'll do so. And I, I, my take is that I do not think that the vaccine is, is, should be the center of return to school for children. I think that we are not seeing the evidence that we had hoped for in terms of reduction in transmission, and, um, and that's what we're talking about when we're talking about making the school safe. Is there a risk of uh, significant transmission? I think there is, uh, whether we employ the vaccine or not. And so I don't find them to be encouraging numbers with respect to return to school because I I don't think that's what we should be focusing on. Dr. Uh, D. Valentino, we have a live event, as you mentioned, later on today. It's called Let's Kids Be Kids. It uh, happens, at least for the general public, from 4 to 5.30. And you mentioned the website, banty.com forward slash COVID. Free to register. What are some of the things that uh, parents and, and those who are intrigued by what's happening in schools will learn today? Okay, so we will talk about, um, uh, Dr. Fulford will talk about some of the evidence around um, you know, the, the uh, extent of COVID and what some of the testing numbers that we have, have been hearing over the last couple of years really mean for the community and, and for the hospital. And, um, and she'll talk a little bit about the um, efficacy of the vaccine and, and, and um, in which groups that we're seeing the greatest benefit of the vaccine in, and therefore who should we be looking at deploying further vaccination strategies which group should we be looking at in terms of doing that? And just try to put it in perspective in terms of risk to children and what benefit children may get um, if their parents choose to provide them with this vaccination. And, um, and then we'll look at uh, some other interesting things that I think parents are, familiar, are, are, are very interested in, uh, such as the use of face masks particularly in schools, and, and does this reduce the risk of transmission or make our children safer in any way? Well, as we know, so knowledge is subjects, yeah. yeah. As we know, knowledge is power, and we'll get a, no- a lot of knowledge uh, later on today uh, with this uh, free Let Kids Be Kids event. Dr. D. Valentino, appreciate the time today, and good luck with the event later on today.
Yes, thanks for having me on, Rick. Greatly appreciate it. That is Dr. Dennis D. Valentino, family doctor and an assistant clinical professor of family medicine at McMaster University. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Advocates for affordable housing in this city who were charged last year by Hamilton police are demanding those charges be dropped. Kojo Dempney is the executive director for the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Kojo. Good morning. How are you? Not too bad. Can you just give us a little bit of a background of the situation because it, it, there's a lot of tentacles here? Yeah, so uh, on November 24th, uh, there was a there was a fire at J.C. Beamer, and uh, the volunteers of the Hamilton and Company Support Network, uh, as they've been doing throughout the whole pandemic, uh, showed up to support encampment uh, encampment residents. And in doing that, the Hamilton police was was called. Uh, bylaw officers were called. Um, and uh, the, the basically was an, ev- an eviction taking place. And so uh, residents and volunteers were there to support incumbent residents. And uh, at some point in time, uh, Hamilton police arrested uh, a number of the incumbent uh, uh, support network volunteers. And, and, then, on, and then on Friday, um, other members, uh, one member was arrested at a at a park, um, and then uh, residents went to the police station, to Central Police Station, to ask for that resident to be released. And in, in doing that, uh, three more uh, uh, black uh, residents were arrested, tackled, uh, dragged, and uh, and uh, that's what that's what uh, happened. And in the in the aftermath, black-led organizations and others are calling for the charges to be dropped, and uh, asking for a judicial inquiry to be opened into the actions of all the police officers. Uh, that secondary uh, protest and arrest happened on uh, November 26th outside Central Police Headquarters, and now you're calling for those charges to be dropped, and you're planning to make your case at the Police Services Board meeting. I think the next one is on January 24th, and you're also following suit with uh, a letter-writing campaign and a phone-calling campaign. Is that correct? Yes, yeah, so that's the the phone the phone writing and the uh, the phone calling and the letter writing campaign is something that the uh, Hamilton and Company Support Network is going to uh, is going to lead and continue to work with with other encampment support networks across the across the country. And uh, on on January 24th, HCCI uh, just put in a request to delegate at the police board meeting asking for them to open a judiciary inquiry into the actions of the officers on November 24th and 26th. And we just heard yesterday from the Special Investigations Unit that looked into one of the arrests outside Hamilton Police uh, Station where a 24-year-old woman was uh, injured, and it found that Hamilton Police did not cross the line. Does that hurt your cause? Uh, no, it doesn't. It actually proves what we've been saying. Right, uh, a number of us have said that there's systemic racism in policing. Uh, there's no oversight, proper oversight in policing. We know that many of the uh, folks that do these investigations at the SIU are former police officers. So uh, uh, we knew that uh, uh, the SIU investigation 
was not going to uh, was not going to go through uh, uh, and look at the actions of police officers. If you look at the history of the SIU, they hardly charge any police uh, any police uh, uh, officers. In their statement, they mentioned uh, the threshold for serious injury wasn't attained. Uh, it has to interfere with someone's health or comfort, require hospitalization and significant burn. Well, I think that <laughs> that's a threshold that seems a little ridiculous because the young black woman uh, was 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 in a was in a boot, was in crutches for a number of weeks, and is still today using a a, a, a walking a walking stick to to move from place A to B. If if we think that's okay for police officers to be tackling people on public on public property, and then uh, 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 an SIU says that uh, a, a threshold for serious injury was not attained, I think that's ludicrous and ridiculous. And quite frankly, the general public should be angered at this because we have police officers tackling people. And uh, there, there doesn't seem to be any recourse for uh, the, the, the residents that are affected. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Kojo Dampney, Executive Director of the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion. As advocates of affordable housing here in Hamilton who were charged last year in these two incidents that we're referring to now demanding for those charges to be dropped, are you intimating, Kojo, that if these protesters were white, they would not have been uh, arrested or handled the way they were? Exactly. I was there on November 26th, and I saw the behavior of some of the police officers, right? When it came to... Uh, and, and, and if you notice, that is why a video was taken, so that everybody can see. And in the video, you can see that uh, uh, out of nowhere, they tackle uh, uh, three, three, three black residents. And in some cases, there were white uh, residents there, and they pulled up. They didn't even touch uh, uh, the white residents. They didn't even lay a hand on white residents. So, again, that is the, 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 the evidence, and that's why we caught it on, on, on video, right? And when police officers showed up, they also said that we were on, uh, people there were on private property. I don't know that uh, <laughs> the, the, poli- the police station is, is private property. It is public property. And so that's why we need to find out exactly what happened. And as you know, the, 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 the folks that were arrested, they also gave instances of, of violence behavior from the police officers when they were taken into the police station. Some, a hijab was ripped off a black Muslim woman, and then there was a, 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 some, some despicable comments that were made by police officers in the station. Kojo, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us, and we'll look forward to what happens at the next Police Services Board hearing. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you very much. That is Kojo Dampney. He is the Executive Director of the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion. As advocates for uh, the homeless population here in Hamilton, those uh, pleading for more affordable housing units who were charged in a couple of protests last year, now demanding those charges uh, to be dropped. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Two paramedics who were found guilty for their role in Yosef Al Hasnawi's death have been sentenced to 18 months to be served in the community. Mario Pastorero is the president of Opsu Local 256, overseeing local paramedics in this city, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Mario. 
Good morning, Rick. Well, we'll we'll start with your reaction to yesterday's sentencing. Your your thoughts on uh, what these two individuals received? I mean, first off, it needs to be mentioned that it's an understatement to say that this was a tragic event, and there's no verdict, no conviction, or sentence that can undo uh, the tragedy of this event. And we we feel for Al Hasnawi family. As far as the sentencing. Uh, the judge referenced the purpose and principles behind sentencing, including denunciation and deterrence, both specific and general, and found that there was no societal value by placing these two paramedics in prison. He rendered the sentence of 18 months to be served in the community with a number of strict conditions. So that aspect of the case is now concluded. Uh, there is an appeal on the initial verdict. Um, the medics have retained expert appellate counsel and, and Mike Lacey out of Toronto uh, to represent uh, them at the higher court, at the appellate court, in that regard. And do these two paramedics have the support of the union in this appeal? Yes. And why so? Why is it necessary for the union to uh, help appeal this decision? I mean, th- th- this case is the first of its kind, the charges and the conviction in North America, if not the world. And we believe that it has an impact not only on the paramedic profession, but the, the broader healthcare sector. Um, mistakes were made. Uh, we, we, we don't agree with the judge's assertions on a number of points, and, and hence the appeal. But, but I'll leave the judge's comments aside. Uh, these paramedics did not intend harm. They did not inflict harm. They made some serious mistakes. And in hindsight, and it's always easier to look at any case in hindsight and assess and pick it apart. Um, we had expert testimony from a Dr. Crosscarry who spoke about diagnostic failure, um, hindsight bias, anchoring. And in this particular case, there was a pervasive pellet gun rumor that was substantiated and reinforced by the dispatch, by the police, by the fire, by eyewitnesses. And unfortunately, these paramedics, wrongly so, focused on the fact that this was a minor injury, and it appeared to be such. Unfortunately, as we know, that minor injury carried a devastating cost and ended the life of Yosef Al-Hajnali. These paramedics did not get up on the morning of their shift and say, today is a good day not to treat somebody well. The call evolved as it did, and as I said, unfortunately, it resulted in the untimely uh, death of Mr. Hosnali. Mario Pastorero is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Mario is the president of Opsi Local 256, overseeing local paramedics uh, in this city. Uh, you mentioned this ruling has a serious impact. What kind of impact do you envision this having? Well, I... I think, first off, let me provide a bit of context specific to one of the expert witnesses. Uh, Dr. Crosscarry testified, provided evidence that diagnostic misdiagnosis or misdiagnosis, clinical misdiagnosis, is the third leading cause of death after heart disease and cancer. Yet there's never been a charge that we are aware of for paramedics or otherwise being charged under the criminal code for failing to provide the necessaries of life. And keep in mind, thousands and thousands of people die every year because of diagnostic failure. 
the burden is now being carried by paramedics on this call. And I, I've, I've got to say, paramedics are forced to make multiple critical decisions rapidly and simultaneously under very tough clinical conditions. Oftentimes, when it's dark, when it's cold, they're on their knees, they're assessing, there's confusing information, there's conflicting information. So to sit back and say, you know, they erred in these areas is, is, is hindsight bias, as, as we call it. So what are the ramifications? Probably the floodgates will open. We'll probably see more uh, charges being filed now that there's uh, this case, this conviction. And we want to make sure that our interests are protected and that there's a counterbalance to the assertion that these paramedics deliberately caused harm on a patient. That is not the case. Thus, thus the need to at least legally challenge the verdict and and, and hopefully uh, gain some clear understanding of, of, of where the criminal code lies in similar cases such as this. We have one more minute here. What are your members saying about this ruling? Are they worried that... Uh, it, it could happen to them. Is there a new protocol in place uh, shifting many, many more people to hospital just in case? Well, I, I think it sent an initial shockwave through the paramedic profession and probably the broader healthcare sector. Um, I think paramedics will practice in a different manner. I'm not sure if it's better. Part of the work that we do as paramedics, we're trained to um, critically think. And part of that critical thinking is to assess and make determinations. And unfortunately, you know, mistakes will be made. In the city of Hamilton, we respond to 90,000 calls for assistance, 90,000. On occasion, mistakes will be made. That doesn't mean that those mistakes are done with malice intent, and it doesn't mean that those mistakes may not continue happening given the quantum of calls that we respond to for assistance. And we'd be wise to remember that. Mario, we got to run. We appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. That is Mario Pastorero. He is the president of Opsi Local 256, overseeing Hamilton Paramedics. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We know that it is important uh, to play our part in the context, and therefore we're looking at options and we'll take a decision in a timely manner. That is the voice of Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie, who says Canada has not decided whether it will help arm Ukrainian forces with military hardware after Britain said it would supply anti-tank weapons to the Eastern European country. This all comes as fears of a Russian invasion of Ukraine are running high in Europe after Russia positioned about 100,000 troops on Ukraine's eastern border. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Let's dive into this topic with Matthew Light. He's an associate professor, Center for Criminology and Sociological Studies at the University of Toronto. Matthew, good morning. How are you? Good morning. So we know that Canada has sent a special forces unit to Ukraine. Is this being viewed as a good move? Well, it's certainly a move of support for Ukraine. Um, I don't know whether it is expected that they would participate in in combat if they were, uh, if there should a war should uh, expand in eastern Ukraine. But sending them there is itself a sign that uh, Canada supports the Ukrainian position. So should we not be surprised if military equipment follows suit? It certainly is a possibility. I was interested to hear uh, Minister Jolie commenting on that. And as as you mentioned in your report, 
Um, the UK has already decided to to send anti-tank weapons to Ukraine. Um, this is one aspect of the way that some NATO countries are supporting Ukraine. The other is through uh, developing a plan for sanctions against Russia should it expand its war against Ukraine. Um, some of the measures that have been discussed include suspending Russian participation in the international uh, banking clearance system known as SWIFT, as well as excluding Russian firms from financial markets and targeting particular uh, individuals in Russia, namely uh, business and political leaders, including the president, Vladimir Putin. Uh, this pileup of uh, forces and, in some regards, military equipment, obviously a show of uh, unification among NATO allies to help deter any kind of aggression from Russia's part. How tenuous of a situation do we have here? Well, it, it is a, a very grave situation. Um, the conflict since Russia and Ukraine has been going on in one form or another since 2014, when uh, Russia occupied and then annexed the Crimean Peninsula and also uh, became involved in a separatist conflict that it, it sponsors and enables in eastern Ukraine. But as you said, um, in the last few weeks, this has really accelerated with this enormous troop buildup uh, on the, the Russian side of the border. Um, and that's been accompanied by um, shipments of, uh, of military equipment to support those soldiers. We've also heard that um, some Russian reservists have been mobilized and that there are now Russian forces inside uh, the neighboring country of Belarus, which is a Russian ally and also borders Ukraine. So certainly the elements are in place for Russia to either launch a full-scale invasion of Ukraine if it wishes, or perhaps to attempt to seize a more limited but nonetheless important part of Ukrainian territory, perhaps to link up uh, Crimea with the Russian-controlled areas of the Ukrainian mainland. And that would be a very, uh, a very destructive and, and bloody conflict that would entail a lot of disruption for uh, all of European security, and of course, a lot of uh, suffering for the people of Ukraine. Um, at the moment, the Russian and U.S. negotiators are meeting in Geneva t- to review some uh, very extreme demands that Russia has made uh, of NATO, um, including in the first place that, that NATO promised never to admit either Ukraine or any other post-Soviet country to the alliance, which it, it um, has refused to do, as well as Ukraine also asserting that it's its right to pursue whatever alliances it wishes. And there are some other demands, too, um, of a similar nature, including that uh, NATO promised not to uh, station uh, forces in the areas of Eastern Europe that joined NATO from 1997, as well as to remove U.S. nuclear weapons from from Europe. Um, At the moment, the negotiations are apparently not going very well. At least the Russians have said that they're not getting what they want. And it has to be said they basically presented these demands as a series of ultimatums rather than some, something they're willing to really talk about and make concessions on. U of T Associate Professor Matthew Light is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Why is Ukraine so important to Russia and Russian President Vladimir Putin? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think, I think the answer has to include multiple dimensions. So um, one is that Ukraine has been moving toward um, the European Union in recent years, uh, in particular through uh, uh, a, a program of association that is intended to kind of jumpstart Ukraine's economic development and bring it into line with, with uh, European policies. And I think um, President Putin sees this as one more post-Soviet country um, slipping out of Russia's economic grip. Um, uh, he has wanted his neighbors to become involved in Russia's customs union and sort of integrate them into the Russian economic sphere. Um, the other is that Ukraine has undergone a process of democratization since it ousted its pro-Russian dictator in 2014. And it's uh, widely believed that you, that Russia finds this kind of political transition in a neighboring country 
threatening because it could serve as an an example for for the people of Russia. Um, Russia claims that it's deeply threatened by the possibility that uh, Ukraine could join NATO um, or even by the mere cooperation of NATO forces with Ukrainian forces. But it's it's hard to take that at face value, given that a number of NATO countries already border Russia and there hasn't been any serious flare-ups on those borders. Um, uh, it also appears that what Russia wants from Ukraine is, is a kind of level of subordination that um, has sort of driven both the government and people of Ukraine further away from Russia. So um, before the conflict started, only a, quite a small minority of Ukrainians were interested in joining NATO, and now that's over 50%. So it seems as though um, Russia's insistence on uh, sort of creating an Eastern European sphere of influence with Ukraine in particular, occupying kind of a uh, subordinate position, has, has backfired in that sense. We will watch and wait, and uh, in many cases with bated breath. Matthew, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Matthew Light, Associate Professor, Center for Criminology and Sociological Studies at the University of Toronto. This issue, also the focus of our Twitter poll question today at AM900CHML. Vote now as tensions rise along the Russia-Ukraine border. Should Canada help arm Ukraine forces with military hardware? You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900CHML. There's a new study out by the Fraser Institute that shows Canada is the sixth most miserable country among 35 advanced economies worldwide. How in the world has this happened? Well, let's ask our next guest. His name is Jason Clemens. He's the executive vice president of the Fraser Institute and co-author of Return to the Misery Index. Jason, good morning. Good morning. Thank you. So we're a miserable bunch all of a sudden. What's going on? Uh, well, unfortunately, uh, so there was a, an index created um, really in the 1970s uh, and 80s that combined the unemployment rate and the inflation rate, because at that time, um, quite unfortunately, again, many countries were experiencing both high rates of unemployment and high rates. Uh, thankfully, we, we tamed inflation, and so nobody really talked about the misery index for more than 25 years. Um, but here we are talking about it again, in large measure because unemployment rates are staying higher than I think most economists expected them to stay. Uh, and then secondly, we have had over a year now much higher rates of inflation uh, than has been normal for the last 20, 25 years. So within the group of industrialized countries, as you mentioned, which is 35 countries covered by the International Monetary Fund, uh, Canada is just not doing well when it comes to our comparative unemployment rate or our comparative rates of inflation when we look at, again, those, those other 35 industri- or 34 industrialized countries. So Canada has a, uh, an index score, if you will, of 10.088. How is that score developed? Sure. So simply put, the misery index combines the standardized unemployment rate and the standardized inflation rate. Um, now, why that's important is because Many countries measure unemployment slightly differently, and even inflation, we have multiple measures of inflation. So what the IMF does is standardize those measures so that we can compare them between countries. Um, And so when we look at inflation, for example, uh, for 2021, Canada has the fourth highest inflation rate. And then when we look at the unemployment rate, we have the eighth highest unemployment rate. And then when you put those two measures together, 
that's how you get the misery index. And, and as you mentioned, we're, we're the sixth highest or sixth worst in terms of the misery index, which again combines those two measures. Jason Clemens is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Jason is the executive VEP of the Fraser Institute and co-author of a report called Return to the Misery Index, which shows Canada is the sixth most miserable country out there. We're ahead of places like the U.S., the U.K., France, and Australia. Can we simply blame the pandemic, or is there more to that? No, there's a lot more to it. I mean, if if this was a, a pandemic issue, then we should see a a fairly standardized problem uh, in terms of the 35 countries we're looking at. But, I mean, contrary to what the federal government and I I guess a few provincial governments are saying, while there is a global inflation issue, there are quite a bit of variance between the countries. So, for example, the United States is experiencing the highest rates of inflation. They're trending upwards. I think more and more economists are getting very concerned about the state of inflation in the United States and what their central bank is going to have to do. Uh, I think Canada is not as bad, but we are certainly close to the United States in terms of our inflation is trending upwards. Um, Thankfully, the Bank of Canada has already started to make some changes, which I think will help. Um, I think the federal government also needs to get in line and do some things that will help. Uh, But certainly when you look at particularly inflation, but also unemployment, Canada is in a league that we don't want to be in, which is we have comparatively high rates of both. Um, You can look at a number of other industrialized countries that are doing significantly better on both measures. So um, while we are having, for example, global supply chain problems, um, again, when we look at Canada's performance, we're worse than most other countries. Yeah, Spain is the most miserable, followed by Greece, Italy, and Iceland. Lowest on the misery index is Japan and Switzerland. So when we're talking about uh, employment levels or unemployment and the inflation, which one is easier to fix? Uh, Great question. I think we need to be making progress on both because there's a really important connection, which is, in essence, the problem we have with inflation is we have too many dollars chasing too few goods. Now, part of the problem with those too few goods is the supply chain problems that that we've already talked about. But another part of that problem is our federal government, particularly when you compare us to other governments, continues to pay Canadians not to work. That is showing up in both the unemployment rate, but also showing up in our inability to generate goods and services. And so part of what we've got to get to is a much better balance between how do we help Canadians who genuinely are in situations where they can't work or need to assist a loved one uh, because of the continued problems with COVID versus we've just been very loose with our federal policy in terms of supporting Canadians. That will help both lower the unemployment rate, but also increase the production of goods and services, which again, that production of goods and services is part of the problem when we look at inflation. Um, The other side of the ledger is uh, we have a Bank of Canada that continues to finance government long-term debt. Uh, The latest statistics as of December is that the Bank of Canada has financed about $435 billion worth of federal long-term debt. And the federal government has signaled that it is going to continue to borrow um, at fairly high levels. Those things need to get changed over the next few months um, rather quickly so that we get a handle on inflationary pressure sooner rather than later. 
and if I just might for a second, one of the reasons that we, the sooner we act, the better is one of the real problems in inflation is when we change people's expectations. If, if workers start to expect 4% or 5% inflation, they're going to start demanding much higher pay raises. And that, it, it just starts to snowball. And that's exactly what we saw in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, and I don't think anybody who remembers those uh, those times wants to get back to those kind of interest rates and inflation rates. Some great insight into the return to the misery index, co-authored by Jason Clemens, our guest. Jason, appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Jason Clemens, Executive VP, Fraser Institute, co-author of the report Return of the Misery Index. And yes, we have returned. Spain, number one amongst the most miserable countries, followed by Greece, Italy, and Iceland. Uh, France follows Canada, the U.S., Australia, and the U.K. Lowest or best scores on the Misery Index is Japan and Switzerland. And again, this is based on inflation and unemployment levels in each country. Well, hopefully we'll chip away at our misery and be a much better place going forward. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We've talked about this issue before, the four-day work week. It sounds so good, doesn't it? But are there some cons with the pros that we're all thinking about right about now? Well, there's a new pilot project that is going to be running from June to December in the United Kingdom, and it will feature a four-day work week uh, for these six months. And 30 UK-based businesses are expected to be involved. So what are some of the highs and some of the lows of a potential four-day work week? Let's ask Dan Kelly. He's the president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business and our latest guest here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Good morning, Dan. Good morning. So a four-day work week is uh, is being used by some companies around the world. Should it be up to individual businesses to decide whether or not they should work four days or five days or whatever the case is? Absolutely. Look, uh, businesses and workers are working out all sorts of unique scenarios to try to get the job done. Uh, more than ever before, there are options for workers, options for that employers are providing because people are demanding it. They, the employees are in hot demand, especially right now, and, and smart employers are trying to figure out ways that they can get the job done. That might mean uh, that people work some longer shifts and then have more days off. In some cases, it might be reduced hours, working from home flexibilities, all sorts of ideas. Now, one of the key aspects of this four-day workweek pilot project in the UK is that while employees would work one less day, they would still get paid the same amount of money. Um, if that were the case, what are the pros and cons of doing so here in Ontario? If the government said came out today and said, hey, this is what we're doing, what are some of the highs and lows that you would, you would pinpoint? Well, look, the idea of a, of a negotiated four-day work week or flexible work arrangements, working from home between the employers and employees makes all kinds of sense, and smart employers are doing that in increasing numbers. The idea of legislating it and requiring employers to have a specific formula uh, would be a disaster. Uh, a legislated four-day work week, especially if it required the same amount of pay, would be about the last thing that we as Canadians need right now. Uh, sure, employees might love to, to get the same pay for less work. Uh, I'm just not sure that that's realistic on any level whatsoever. 
the biggest question right now is our employers going to be able to survive uh, that's what we're dealing with at, at this moment and even in ordinary economic times so once we get the pandemic behind us um, it's not like employers are sitting on tons of cash my members small business owners are desperately trying, even in good times, to try to keep their businesses afloat, to pay more money for less work. Obviously, makes no economic sense. Uh, they're going to have to figure this out. There are wage pressures, though, uh, and employers, employees, smart employees, do do understand that they have power at this moment because employers are desperate for workers. Employers have to try to keep up with the demands of their workers. Getting governments involved in legislating things is the part that we would object to. Dan Kelly is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Dan is the president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. We're chatting about a pilot project that will commence this June in the United Kingdom in which a a bunch of uh, businesses that are partaking in this uh, program will offer a four-day work week for the same amount of pay. Are you seeing more and more companies and businesses dismissing the amount of hours that they're offering and targeting more so on output or production, i.e. working smarter and not harder? It depends on the sector. Uh, There are certain types of of occupations, and those are often the ones, for example, during the the pandemic that were hit hard in retail, in the hospitality sector, in tourism. Uh, where you need employees to go face-to-face with customers to serve the customers in the restaurant, in the store. Obviously, working from home and uh, working fewer hours just doesn't work. Uh, they, need to be, they need to be there when their customers want them to be there. Um, but in other sectors, white-collar professions, you're quite right. Uh, employers, smart employers are saying, look, this is the job that needs to, be get, to get done, whether it takes you 10 hours or, or 50 hours, uh, here's the pay packet that goes along with it. <clears throat> and that, I think, is more and more the case. The other thing that's happening, of course, is that with technology, uh, many employees are spending more time at, at work, but their personal life is also bleeding into the business day. I think what's important is that there's fairness, uh, fairness for the employer and fairness for the worker. If these things are negotiated uh, through agreements between workers and employers, it all works great. Where governments like to get involved and say, no, you've got to do it in this one unique fashion, that's where the system starts to break down. My guess is, and we only have about 30 seconds, that if we had a three-day weekend, it would benefit probably tourism operators and maybe even the restaurant industry. Sure, there are certain sectors that, that might benefit from that, but... Uh, you know, I got to tell you, the, the, the question is, do consumers have more money to, to be able to spend in these businesses? Yes, you might be able to go on vacation more often, you might have more time. But if your pay packet remains the same, are you going to have the money <laughs> to do all of these great activities that may become available to you? That's a good point. Dan, appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. Anytime. Dan Kelly, the president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, chiming in on the thought of a four-day work week. Well, at least in the UK, for uh, just over two dozen companies, they will be participating in this pilot project. It'll be interesting to see what results they come up with. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode, and make sure you rate and review.